0: Download the Viator app now and use code VIATOR10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 2. Limeridge House. November 27th. My forebodings are realized. The marriage is fixed for the 22nd of December. The day after he left for Polesdean Lodge, Sir Percival wrote, it seems to Mr. Fairley, to say that the necessary repairs and alterations in his house in Hampshire would occupy a much longer time in completion than he had originally anticipated. The proper estimates were to be submitted to him as soon as possible, and it would greatly facilitate his entering into definite arrangements with the work-people if he could be informed of the exact period at which the wedding ceremony might be expected to take place." "'he could then make all his calculations in reference to time, "'besides writing the necessary apologies to friends "'who had been engaged to visit him that winter, "'and who could not, of course, "'be received when the house was in the hands of the workmen. "'To this letter Mr. Fairley had replied "'by requesting Sir Percival himself "'to suggest a day for the marriage, "'subject to Miss Fairley's approval, "'which her guardian willingly undertook "'to do his best to obtain.' Sir Percival wrote back by the next post, and proposed, in accordance with his own views and wishes from the first, the latter part of December, perhaps the twenty-second or twenty-fourth, or any other day that the lady and her guardian might prefer. The lady, not being at hand to speak for herself, her guardian had decided, in her absence, on the earliest day mentioned, the twenty-second of December, and had written to recall us to Limeridge in consequence. After explaining these particulars to me at a private interview yesterday, Mr. Fairley suggested, in his most amiable manner, that I should open the necessary negotiations to-day. Feeling that resistance was useless, unless I could first obtain Laura's authority to make it, I consented to speak to her, but declared, at the same time, that I would on no consideration undertake to gain her consent to Sir Percival's wishes. Mr. Fairley complimented me on my excellent conscience, much as he would have complimented me if he had been out walking on my excellent constitution and seemed perfectly satisfied so far with having simply shifted one more family responsibility from his own shoulders to mine. This morning I spoke to Laura as I had promised. The composure... I may almost say, the insensibility which she has so strangely and so resolutely maintained ever since Sir Percival left us, was not proof against the shock of the news, I had to tell her. She turned pale and trembled violently. Not so soon, she pleaded. Oh, Marian, not so soon. The slightest hint she could give was enough for me. I rose to leave the room and fight her battle for her at once with Mr. Fairley. Just as my hand was on the door, she caught fast hold of my dress and stopped me. "'Let me go,' I said. "'My tongue burns to tell your uncle "'that he and Sir Percival are not to have it all their own way.' She sighed bitterly and still held my dress. "'No,' she said faintly. "'Too late, Marianne, too late.' "'Not a minute too late,' I retorted. "'The question of time is our question, "'and trust me, Laura, to take a woman's full advantage of it.' "'I unclasped her hand from my gown while I spoke, "'but she slipped both her arms round my waist at the same moment "'and held me more effectually than ever. "'It will only involve us in more trouble and more confusion,' she said. "'It will set you and my uncle at variance.' and bring Sir Percival here again with fresh causes of complaint. "'So much the better!' I cried out passionately. "'Who cares for his causes of complaint? "'Are you to break your heart to set his mind at ease? "'No man under heaven deserves these sacrifices from us women. "'Men, they are the enemies of our innocence and our peace. "'They drag us away from our parents' love and our sisters' friendship.' They take us, body and soul, to themselves and fasten our helpless lives to theirs as they chain up a dog to his kennel. And what does the best of them give us in return? Let me go, Laura. I'm mad when I think of it. The tears, miserable, weak, woman's tears of vexation and rage started to my eyes. She smiled, sadly, and put her handkerchief over my face, to hide from me the betrayal of my own weakness, the weakness of all others which she knew that I most despised. "'Oh, Marianne,' she said, "'you crying! "'Think what you would say to me if the places were changed "'and if those tears were mine. "'All your love and courage and devotion "'will not alter what must happen sooner or later. "'Let my uncle have his way,' "'Let us have no more troubles and heart-burnings "'that any sacrifice of mine can prevent. "'Say you will live with me, Marianne, when I am married, "'and say no more.' "'But I did say more. "'I forced back the contemptible tears that were no relief to me "'and that only distressed her, "'and reasoned and pleaded as calmly as I could. "'It was of no avail. "'She made me twice repeat the promise "'to live with her when she was married,' and then suddenly asked a question which turned my sorrow and my sympathy for her into a new direction. While we were at Polesdean, she said, you had a letter, Marianne. Her altered tone, the abrupt manner in which she looked away from me and hid her face on my shoulder, the hesitation which silenced her before she had completed her question, all told me but too plainly, "'to whom the half-expressed inquiry pointed. "'I thought, Laura, that you and I were never to refer to him again,' "'I said gently. "'You had a letter from him,' she persisted. "'Yes,' I replied, if you must know it. "'Do you mean to write to him again?' "'I hesitated. "'I had been afraid to tell her of his absence from England "'or of the manner in which my exertions,' to serve his new hopes and projects, had connected me with his departure. What answer could I make? He was gone, where no letters could reach him for months, perhaps for years to come. Suppose I do mean to write to him again, I said at last. What then, Laura? Her cheek grew burning hot against my neck, and her arms trembled and tightened round me, "'Don't tell him about the 22nd,' she whispered. "'Promise, Marianne, pray promise "'you will not even mention my name to him "'when you write next.' "'I gave the promise. "'No words can say how sorrowfully I gave it. "'She instantly took her arm from my waist, "'walked away to the window, "'and stood looking out with her back to me. "'After a moment she spoke once more, "'but without turning round,' "'without allowing me to catch the smallest glimpse of her face. "'Are you going to my uncle's room?' she asked. "'Will you say that I consent to whatever arrangement he may think best? "'Never mind leaving me, Marian. "'I shall be better alone for a little while.' "'I went out. "'If as soon as I got into the passage "'I could have transported Mr. Fairley and Sir Percival Glyde "'to the uttermost ends of the earth,' "'by lifting one of my fingers. "'That finger would have been raised "'without an instant's hesitation. "'For once my unhappy temper now stood my friend. "'I should have broken down altogether "'and burst into a violent fit of crying "'if my tears had not been all burnt up "'in the heat of my anger. "'As it was, I dashed into Mr. Fairley's room, "'called to him as harshly as possible. "'Laura consents to the twenty second. And dashed out again, without waiting for a word of answer. I banged the door after me, and I hope I shattered Mr. Fairley's nervous system for the rest of the day. November 28th. This morning I read poor Hartwright's farewell letter over again, a doubt having crossed my mind since yesterday whether I am acting wisely in concealing the fact of his departure from Laura. "'On reflection, I still think I am right. "'The allusions in his letter to the preparations "'made for the expedition to Central America "'all show that the leaders of it know it to be dangerous. "'If the discovery of this makes me uneasy, "'what would it make her? "'It is bad enough to feel that his departure "'has deprived us of the friend of all others "'to whose devotion we could trust in the hour of need, "'if ever that hour comes and finds us helpless.' but it is far worse to know that he has gone from us to face the perils of a bad climate, a wild country. Surely it would be a cruel candor to tell Laura this, without a pressing and a positive necessity for it. I almost doubt whether I ought not to go a step farther and burn the letter at once, for fear of its one day falling into wrong hands. It not only refers to Laura in terms which ought to remain a secret, forever, between the writer and me, but it reiterates his suspicion, so obstinate, so unaccountable, and so alarming, that he has been secretly watched since he left Limeridge. He declares that he saw the faces of the two strange men who followed him about the streets of London, watching him among the crowd which gathered at Liverpool to see the expedition embark and he positively asserts that he heard the name of Anne Catherick pronounced behind him as he got into the boat. His own words are, These events have a meaning. These events must lead to a result. The mystery of Anne Catherick is not cleared up yet. She may never cross my path again, but if ever she crosses yours, make better use of the opportunity, Miss Halcombe, than I made of it. "'I speak on strong conviction. "'I entreat you to remember what I say. "'These are his own expressions. "'There is no danger of my forgetting them. "'My memory is only too ready to dwell on any words of Hartwright's "'that refer to Anne Catherick. "'But there is danger in my keeping the letter. "'The mare's accident might place it at the mercy of strangers. "'I may fall ill. "'I may die.' Better to burn it at once, than have one anxiety the less. It is burnt. The ashes of his farewell letter, the last he may ever write to me, lie in a few black fragments on the hearth. Is this the sad end to all that sad story? Oh, not the end. Surely, surely not the end already. November 29th The preparations for the marriage have begun. The dressmaker has come to receive her orders. Laura is perfectly impassive, perfectly careless about the question of all others, in which a woman's personal interests are most closely bound up. She has left it all to the dressmaker and to me. If poor Hartwright had been the baronet and the husband of her father's choice, how differently she would have behaved, how anxious and capricious she would have been, and what a hard task the best of dressmakers would have found it to please her. November thirtieth. We hear every day from Sir Percival. The last news is that the alterations in his house will occupy from four to six months before they can be properly completed. If painters, paper-hangers, and upholsterers could make happiness as well as splendor, I should be interested about their proceedings in Laura's future home." as it is, the only part of Sir Percival's last letter, which does not leave me, as it found me, perfectly indifferent to all his plans and projects, is the part which refers to the wedding tour. He proposes, as Laura is delicate, and as the winter threatens to be unusually severe, to take her to Rome, and to remain in Italy until the early part of next summer. If this plan should not be approved, he is equally ready although he has no establishment of his own in town, to spend the season in London, in the most suitable furnished house that can be obtained for the purpose. Putting myself and my own feelings entirely out of the question, which it is my duty to do, and which I have done, I, for one, have no doubt of the propriety of adopting the first of these proposals. In either case, a separation between Laura and me is inevitable, it will be a longer separation in the event of their going abroad than it would be in the event of their remaining in London. But we must set against this disadvantage the benefit to Laura, on the other side, of passing the winter in a mild climate, and more than that, the immense assistance in raising her spirits and reconciling her to her new existence, which the mere wonder and excitement of travelling, for the first time in her life, in the most interesting country in the world, "'must surely afford. "'She is not of a disposition to find resources "'in the conventional gaieties and excitements of London. "'They would only make the first oppression "'of this lamentable marriage fall the heavier on her. "'I dread the beginning of her new life more than words can tell. "'But I see some hope for her if she travels. "'None if she remains at home.' "'It is strange to look back at this latest entry in my journal "'and to find that I am writing of the marriage "'and the parting with Laura "'as people write of a settled thing. "'It seems so cold and so unfeeling "'to be looking at the future "'already in this cruelly composed way. "'But what other way is possible "'now that the time is drawing so near? "'Before another month is over our heads "'she will be his Laura instead of mine.' "'His, Laura.' "'I am as little able to realize the idea "'which those two words convey. "'My mind feels almost as dulled and stunned by it, "'as if writing of her marriage were like writing of her death.' "'December 1st.' "'A sad, sad day, "'a day that I have no heart to describe at any length. "'After weekly putting it off last night,' I was obliged to speak to her this morning of Sir Percival's proposal about the wedding tour. In the full conviction that I should be with her wherever she went, the poor child, for a child she is still in many things, was almost happy at the prospect of seeing the wonders of Florence and Rome and Naples. It nearly broke my heart to dispel her delusion and to bring her face to face with the hard truth, I was obliged to tell her that no man tolerates a rival, not even a woman rival, in his wife's affections, when he first marries, whatever he may do afterwards. I was obliged to warn her that my chance of living with her permanently, under her own roof, depended entirely on my not arousing Sir Percival's jealousy and distrust by standing between them at the beginning of their marriage, in the position of the chosen depository of his wife's closest secrets. Drop by drop, I poured the profaning bitterness of this world's wisdom into that pure heart and that innocent mind, while every higher and better feeling within me recoiled from my miserable task. It is over now. She has learnt her hard, her inevitable lesson. The simple illusions of her girlhood are gone, and my hand has stripped them off better mine than his, that is all my consolation, better mine than his. So, the first proposal is the proposal accepted. They are to go to Italy, and I am to arrange, with Sir Percival's permission, for meeting them and staying with them when they return to England. In other words, I am to ask a personal favor for the first time in my life, and to ask it of the man of all others to whom I least desire to owe a serious obligation of any kind. Well, I think I could do even more than that, for Laura's sake. December 2nd On looking back, I find myself always referring to Sir Percival in disparaging terms. In the turn affairs have now taken, I must and will root out my prejudice against him, I cannot think how it first got into my mind. It certainly never existed in former times. Is it Laura's reluctance to become his wife that has set me against him? Have Hartwright's perfectly intelligible prejudices infected me without my suspecting their influence? Does that letter of Anne Catherick's still leave a lurking distrust in my mind, in spite of Sir Percival's explanation, and of the proof in my possession of the truth of it? "'I cannot account for the state of my own feelings. "'The one thing I am certain of is that it is my duty, "'doubly my duty now, "'not to wrong Sir Percival by unjustly distrusting him. "'If it has got to be a habit with me "'always to write of him in the same unfavorable manner, "'I must and will break myself of this unworthy tendency, "'even though the effort should force me "'to close the pages of my journal till the marriage is over.' I am seriously dissatisfied with myself. I will write no more today. More to dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all in one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this high quality leads, fast closing deals wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.